0: Hi, this is Daniel Levine. Before we begin this week's episode of the Bio Report, I wanted to share some exciting news with you. Starting in January, I'll be hosting Rarecast, a new podcast with Global Genes and their publication Rare Daily, where we'll explore the intersection of business, policy, and science around rare disease. Stay tuned for more details in the next few weeks and keep an eye out for us on raredaily.org. last month of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation's $3.3 billion sale of royalty rights to Caladeco and other Vertex Pharmaceuticals drugs it helped fund served as a bold statement to the growing prominence and power of venture philanthropy. We spoke to Margaret Anderson, Executive Director of Faster Cures, about the transaction, the role new funding and collaboration models are playing in accelerating drug development, and what traditional investors and disease groups are learning from each other. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Thank
1: you. Great to be here.
0: Your organization, Faster Cures, recently finished its annual Partnering for Cures conference. We're going to talk about new collaboration models and how they're accelerating the movement from discovery to market, but let's start with the funding environment today. It's been an unusual time for life sciences funding. we seem to be firing on all engines right now. There's big money going into venture funds. The IPO market has been setting new records, and big pharma has been increasingly relying on external sources of R&D and pumping funding into universities and small startups. The one point of disappointment, I argue, has been the federal government, which has traditionally funded high-risk early-stage research, but that's been shrinking in real terms. When you look at the funding landscape today, are there gaps, and, and if so, where are they?
1: Absolutely, there are gaps, and I think you pointed out appropriately the the federal funding, you know, significant gap that I think is sending kind of shockwaves in a in a way throughout the entire biomedical research system, particularly in the academic sphere. I think the academic community, you know, doesn't really have uh, a you know, a fully formed Plan B in terms of what to do about that funding gap. There's lots of interesting, I think, collaborations that are starting to um, really take root between industry and academia. And you know, there's there's lots of best practices to look at there. the The disease foundation world has consistently been, you know, funding academia. But that is even under pressure just in terms of looking at the terms of of that funding. So I think that it's it's an issue everybody needs to be very conscious of and forward thinking about where is this money going to come from so that we can make sure we have a robust system.
0: Well, when you look at what disease research groups are doing and foundations are doing, to, to what extent have they been able to kind of fill those gaps?
1: We at Faster Cures have looked at this phenomenon since we were found eleven years ago. We call them venture philanthropy groups, and they're part of a network called our train network. the The number of groups increases; the the amount of money I don't think increases dramatically over you know that last ten year period. But what has really I think taken root is. The, the models have been much more fine-tuned and they're actually starting to, you know, really show what's possible in terms of drug development and targeted science. So I think that our interest in understanding that model and really kind of working with these groups is to try to spread those best practices. I don't think we're going to see a scenario where every disease has a group affiliated with it that can corral the research and kind of lead the charge. So our question is, how do you take the, the methodologies that they have and apply it to the rest of the system so that on, you know, the unfortunate day that we receive a diagnosis and then we go to the, uh, you know, internet and find that there's really not a lot of advanced treatments, if there's not a group, we don't kind of hang our head in despair and say, oh, that's it. I, I want the system to be responsive to all those diseases. And I think it's,
0: it's certainly possible. Maybe you should be a little clear about terminology here. When you say venture philanthropy, what what do you mean by that?
1: So these are not-for-profit disease research foundations. And the reason the term venture philanthropy took off is that it's basically allocating capital in kind of a venture capital way, you know, really targeting investment based on the scientific need. So depending on a particular disease, they could have, you know, these groups could have very... Uh, divergent philosophies about where they're putting their money and kind of, you know, where are they on the continuum uh, based on the understanding of the disease. So if you have a disease that we don't really even understand why it happens, they're going to be much more targeted in the you know basic early stage. If you have lots of possible therapies, then you're going to see groups that are actually working and funding biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies.
0: And, and the implication in the term is that they're taking some kind of a financial stake—that there's either equity or, or other interest in, in the results.
1: So there is no one size fits all for any of these disease research foundations. So there are groups that do that, and there are you know groups that don't do it. It's all based on their you know individual organizational philosophy, and really, what are they trying to achieve, and um, you know where are they in the continuum?
0: So. Are are there things that these groups do to leverage their investment?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I think, importantly, we need to be looking at it from the other side, which is how can the groups that receive that funding leverage that investment? And that's something that we're working on trying to um, help the university community understand. It's not just receiving a check from a disease research foundation. It's the possibility of being part of a, you know, sort of a networked approach to solving a problem. That can be beneficial both to the the individual investigators within an institution. It could be really helpful to a technology transfer office in terms of, um, you know, potential for licensing and relationships that these foundations have.
0: I take it there are other things these these groups can do, whether it's connecting researchers with patients when you start moving towards clinical trials or having a, a good sense of evaluating the science relative to what else has been there how validating is it to have these groups involved in a in a project
1: it's incredibly validating and what we have seen is that some of the investor community has started to look at the the venture philanthropy groups as you know sort of the good housekeeping seal of approval so if a if a group is involved with an institution or a scientist or a company then you know, it's showing they've done their due diligence. These groups have in- impeccable, um, you know, a-, a process that they've all established for their own peer review. So this is not just blindly disseminating funds. It's very targeted, directed uh, investments.
0: Well, last month, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation announced that it had sold its rights to royalties in Vertex Pharmaceuticals, breakthrough drug Calideco, and, and other drugs that it helped fund the development of for $3.3 billion. It's, it's quite a windfall. H- how do you think that will change the way other disease foundations think and act?
1: I think the question should even be broader. How will the entire system react and act upon that, that news? So, first of all, from the, the standpoint of cystic fibrosis research, that, that financial payout is game changing. I mean, the, the research itself, the drug is transformative to those people who are impacted, you know, that, that fit the profile to be able to be helped by that drug. But it now allows the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and the research community and the patient community there to, to create a game plan for, um, you know, a, a potential for a cure. So, I think that the entire system has looked at that news and said, you know, that's amazing how did they do that? And then you go back to looking at the entire model and saying they did it because they had the patients involved, they had families involved, they had scientists involved, they had companies, they had academia, they had government, you know, and you can kind of look at the whole story and understand how how they managed to do it. I would ask you know, who wouldn't want to see that kind of success and who wouldn't want to see, um, you know, people's lives be transformed, which is, you know, what happens when some of these drugs are developed. You know, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, like like many other groups like Faster Cures, we're looking now at the maybe the next frontier, which is how do we value that type of innovation and then what's the reimbursement paradigm so that you could cover it, you know, to make sure that it's actually available to people.
0: Well, has there been growing sophistication from these groups, not just as as funders, but as investors?
1: I absolutely think that these groups are growing more sophisticated by the day. These are not, uh, you know, sort of very passive, old-fashioned, you know, kind of your grandmother, great-grandmother charities. These are... These are groups that are very focused on, in a sense, putting themselves out of business. Um, they're not interested in waiting years for things to possibly bloom. You know, they, they want to see metrics. They want to understand how will there be a collaborative approach taken. I mean, they really look at themselves as talent scouts, you know, kind of out scouring the, the universe for where, where are the pockets that need to be put together? Um, and our experience in, you know, watching these groups, engaging with them, attending their scientific advisory groups, is that the science community wants that too. You know, they, they want to be part of these solutions and they want to see success now, right? I mean, we all want to see that.
0: Well, looking at that type of, of a windfall, is there any concern that, that success could skew the mission of organizations and put profit ahead of patients?
1: I don't believe so. I think these organizations are built by, they're built for, they're built with patients who are desperately waiting for treatments and cures. And, you know, I was on a a radio talk show the week of the the, um, decision with Royalty Pharma and Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, and I, I remarked how I had gone on their Facebook page, you know, the night before, and was stunned at how many families who had already lost a child to cystic fibrosis were writing in celebration about what, what was possible now in terms of treating and potentially curing a disease like that. So I think these groups are very grounded in that. It t- helps them to keep this very focused kind of longer view where patients are put at the front, at the center, you know, at the end of the process. And that's where you're seeing the, you know, intense studying going on. So the pharmaceutical biotechnology industries are, they're all talking about patient centricity. And I think there's so much to be gained and learned um, between these two, you know, types of groups sharing back and forth.
0: So when we talk about innovation, we we, we often focus on the science, but there's been tremendous innovation in in financial models and in, in partnering models and in collaborations what are you seeing in terms of new models with disease groups and and traditional researchers and, and drug makers?
1: So I think the you know p- potential for disruption to early stage investing you know that that is presented by these models can't be ignored. I think we don't know the long term impact on this because it's still evolving. Faster Cures did a crowdfunding webinar that uh, folks can find on our website, where we had you know a very active discussion about this. I think the you know traditional R and D funders you know are focused on de risking their investments by bringing money into the the later stage, um, you know, and and that promises a certain level of financial return. So I think these new um, models are offering the possibility of investment. To a different younger generation that uh, you know has a different timeline, a different expectation, um, you know, different methodologies even. So I, I think it's an interesting one to watch. Everybody's you know very keen to see kind of how this works out and and you know kind of what the proof of principle is.
0: Well, walk me through one or two of those. I mean, wh- what are some of the new models you've seen that that have either surprised or impressed you? Well, I think
1: you know. One that we are hearing about is sci- individual scientists who are crowdfunding uh, their projects. And I think it's incredibly exciting. I think it's invigorating. I do think that you need to, you know, be thinking about the, the whole system, which is how do we know which piece to fund? It's not dissimilar from when you make a decision to... to um, select a charity that you're going to invest in or give a donation to. And there's now different tools that you can use to kind of check on that based on what are your parameters. So I think, you know, the idea of crowdfunding individual science projects is real. It's exciting. It has to be figured out because you also, a lot of these scientists are working at institutions and the institutions are saying, huh, you know, we're not exactly sure how this works out. So I think sometimes they're Ask, they're offering more questions than answers, but yeah you know, we're at the beginning of it.
0: And, and on the venture philanthropy side are you seeing this becoming an increasingly important source of funding not not just from the terms of, of disease groups but in terms of, of companies raising capital today?
1: Absolutely. I think that these are now these groups are established they're seen as very unique powerful resources. Uh, that they have an ability to leverage, you know, both public and private investments. They're seen as aggregators. Um, I think that they, they've passed the, you know, the test, so to speak, from the, the industry community. I think there's still a lot of experimentation going on in terms of how to, you know, kind of foster relationships between all the different parties. There's no question these groups are here to stay. There's no question they're here to teach. And I think one of the hallmarks of the groups is a very open source spirit in terms of trying to let others in on how they did what they did. I mean, one of the reasons we created our train network was so that these groups could focus on fixing their problems and maybe not doing all of the um, sort of technical assistance work. So a lot of the resources we put out are to help various communities understand, you know, who are these groups? What do they do? How do they do it? you know, what tools do they need to, um, you know, work with them.
0: So as we look at these new models of collaboration between disease focus groups and and traditional investors, how how have they learned to work together and, and what have they learned from each other?
1: So I think that they're learning that they have a lot in common and perhaps that was a surprise at the beginning of, you know, some of these relationships is that, the disease focus groups are just as interested in speed and efficiency and kind of maximizing the ROI. And I don't mean that in terms of a, a payout perspective, but it's, you know, I always say these groups are often fundraising from a, a you know empty bank account at the beginning of every new year. So they have to go out and start over the lemonade stands and the walkathons and all of that. So they're very thoughtful about where they're putting that money. And that's obviously very attractive to the investor community because, you know, they want the same thing, which is they want success and they want, you know, kind of good value for money.
0: Margaret Anderson, Executive Director of Faster Cures. Margaret, thanks for your time today.
1: Thank you so much.